So we're in our Prayers for Christmas, Prayers for Advent series, and uh, this week we're talking about prayers for submission. Now, obviously, you know, I really like to make um, as many sermon analogies and jokes that um, pertain to the Eagles as possible on Sundays, and when we talk about prayers of submission, when we're playing the Cowboys, I mean, there's just so many jokes that could be flying around about the Cowboys' prayers of submission and all of that, but I, I actually couldn't figure out any great ones that fit in with the sermon, so let's just all like acknowledge the fact that this would be a great sermon to have those jokes on, but we're not going to have them, and we can all just like pretend that we did and have a good laugh, and yes. Um, our passage for today is in Matthew chapter 1, and, and uh, Alicia already read it for us, and so we're not going to read it right now. You, you already heard it once in this, um, in this service, and we'll be referring back to it, but... Uh, but that's the passage. So if you're following along in your scriptures, it's Matthew 1, um, starting in verse 18 and going to the end of the chapter. Okay? Let's pray. Our hope is that this Sunday, this service, this message right here is a place where you get to communicate with us, God. We know that we don't give you nearly enough space to communicate to us. We recognize the fact that it would be much better if we were constantly in a listening mode. But we recognize that we're limited and we're sinners and we fall short. But here is a special set-aside moment for you to communicate with us and for us to learn about you. And so we just are taking a minute here and just saying, God, please, whatever it is that you have for us today, communicate it clearly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the turn of the 20th century, apparently there was this church in Switzerland and they were having some problems with their church building. The roof was having some issues and it was kind of falling apart and they needed to replace the roof. And so what they decided to do was, is after services, they'd have a prayer thing after each service and invite God to help them out financially so that they could fix the roof. And so there was this one guy, an older gentleman who was really wealthy, but he was known to be tight-fisted cheap. And so he would come and sit in the back of the service and right when it was time for the offering to come, he'd kind of sneak out, you know. Well, one day he got to church and the pastor, he was there on time and everything, but the pastor held him up in the lobby. He was talking to him a little bit. By the time he actually got into the sanctuary, the only seats left were right up front. So he comes up and sits down up front. And in the middle of the service, fate would have it that a little piece of the roof kind of came loose and fell down and bonk, right on the head, you know? And this guy sees it as a message from God. And so he, he says right in the middle of the church service, I'll give a thousand francs. And this voice from the back, someone speaks up and says, hit him again, God. <laughs> Sometimes when God wants to do something in this world, he doesn't just do it himself. He wants to empower us to do it. And he gives us the ability to fulfill this wonderful plan that he has for us. But lots of times we don't get the memo because we're not listening that well. And sometimes what he wants to do is so peculiar and so radically different that he really has to do something to wake us up. The lame brain in the front seat shouldn't have needed anything to fall on his head to know that he could have helped out. But that wasn't very nice, was it? Um, but the... the uh, the, the truth is, is that in this situation, in Advent, there were some people's lives who were going to be radically altered. 
And God wanted them to help facilitate this moment. And yet they needed, it was so different. And, and it was so bizarre what it is that he was doing. That, uh, that he had to send angels to come and talk to them. And so Mary and Joseph both have different angelic appearances showing up because their lives are going to be unrecognizable after this moment. What God wants to do through them is epic. You know, this is it. This is the moment. And he's going to do something phenomenal in their life. And, you know, Mary gets a fair amount of press. She gets good airtime. You know, throughout church history, a lot of the church has recognized Mary often. And uh, there shouldn't be any doubt of that. But Joseph, I don't know, Joseph, what actually he does and what he has to do has to do versus the amount of airtime he gets in, in the Christmas story and throughout the year, I think it's pretty limited. And, you know, I don't think that's just like some guy feeling bad for the dude in the situation. I think legitimately what happens in the life of Joseph is pretty impressive and it's worth stepping back and taking a look at. And, you know, for these Prayers of Advent series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at different characters in the Advent series and seeing their interactions with Jesus and then taking that to a mode of prayer for ourselves and in our own personal interactions with Christ in prayer, modeling their their uh, response. And I think that today what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes and just look at what this was all like for Joseph. And how does this strike Joseph? This is how it starts. In, uh, traditionally, in the uh, Jewish wedding process, and in ancient Jewish wedding process, there's three steps in the engagement process or in the wedding process. First is engagement, which is nothing like engagement we have now. That's actually, we would refer to it as arrangement. It's when the parents got together and arranged the marriage uh, for the kids. They're young at that point. Then they, they come of age, and that's not like binding. The arrangement wasn't binding, but it's kind of uh, intent. You know, that's the intent. And so then the kids come of age, and it's time to get married. And so then they step into what is called a betrothal process. And the betrothal process, is it's like a covenant relationship that you enter in. You actually, it's a legally binding covenant with another person. So this is like the only thing we have in our society that looks like this is marriage. You know, under the law, you come together and you're making a legally binding commitment. That's what this is, except they don't live together. They don't consummate the marriage. This is, this is simply still a, uh, a platonic relationship with the intent toward marriage, with the commitment toward marriage. And for a year, they live in this covenantal relationship. That's what it looks like. Now, this is, is, again, this is not like our engagement. This is much more intense than our engagement. To get out of that relationship, you actually have to have a divorce. Um, and, and if you were found, if one of the parties in the relationship was found uh, in infidelity, then there was a pretty stiff penalty that general penalty is stoning by death. Death by stoning, actually. Um, and uh, have you heard about this woman in Iran who's, you know, they're, they're saying they're going to stone? And there's, there's kind of like an international outcry about the fact that this woman's being stoned because of infidelity. And you kind of, you get it, you know, like why the outcry is there, <laughs> like this woman's being stoned. On the other hand, when you trace back where the stoning for infidelity started, it, it's really kind of it's Jesus, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is the one who, when the woman's about to be stoned for infidelity, he steps in and says, she who, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And so he stops the whole process. And yet originally the law that called for the stoning of, of people who were in infidelity was written by the one and the same God, Jesus. And so he reinterprets the law in a different moment and in a different situation. 
but when it comes to how serious God sees the sanctity of marriage, when it's how serious God is about fidelity, about the covenant relationship of marriage, about intimacy being shared in one specific kind of relationship, God has been perfectly clear throughout history about just how important purity is to him. And, and he's never compromised on how important that is. Good note to remember. That's kind of a side note for us on one level, but a good note for all of us to remember is that if we're in a, a marriage right now, how just incredibly important God sees that thing, so important that the law was, if you step out of those bounds, death. That's what it used to be. If, if you engaged in certain kinds of relationship prior to the marriage or outside of it, death. That's what it used to be. That's just harsh. And yet it reveals how important God saw that. Okay, anyway, that was the betrothal process. That's where Mary and Joseph were. The third step in the wedding process is the actual wedding, which is, you know, what we know of a wedding too. They get married and they move in and they consummate the marriage and they enjoy life together. Well, Joseph has been engaged to this woman and now is betrothed to her. And you can, this is kind of the picture I get. Mary's kind of growing up and Joseph's a little bit older and he's watching her and he sees this woman growing up knowing that this is possibly, potentially and probably going to be his wife. And he watches and we know that Mary's an awesome woman. You know, so he's watching her life and she's, he's watching how she interacts with her friends and everything. And he's just saying like, man, this is an awesome woman. I was so blessed Man, did my parents do a good job picking her, you know? And the whole thing's where, and then they finally get to the place where they're going to have this covenant, and they sign the document or shake the hands or give the hug or the wink-wink, whatever it is that, you know, seals the, the covenant. And they seal the covenant, and you know that inside of them, while there's some fear because they don't know what this is all about, first time for them, there's also an anticipation that's continuing to grow, and there's excitement and all of that. And this is going to be my bride. And, you know, things are, are wonderful, and they start this year-long process of getting to know each other more deeply. And in the middle of it, something absolutely tragic happens. Joseph finds out that his betrothed is pregnant. Where there's smoke, there's fire, right? I mean, obviously something's going on. And so this is difficult. And uh, what we're told is that Joseph is a righteous man. Now, a righteous man means that he's a law-abiding man there, and so he wants to follow the law. It's, according to the law at this point, kind of inappropriate for him to stay connected with this woman, so he's got to do something about it. Um, he doesn't necessarily have to get her stoned, but he finds a way to divorce her. So he's a righteous man, and he's going to live by the law. But he also doesn't want to publicly disgrace her. You see all across this thing that, that Joseph's heart is still for Mary. He still loves Mary. He still wants the best for Mary. And it's kind of weird. He's kind of torn. You know? And so he decides to divorce her, but, but to not do it publicly and to try to save face. Now, that night, an angel shows up in his dream, starts talking to him. And this is what he says. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, why would he be afraid? Does he have anything to be afraid of? Absolutely. I mean, his reputation is completely and entirely on the line, is it not? The life that he had anticipated is completely and entirely on the line. The, the business that he's worked so hard to build in carpentry is totally on the line because you know how he's going to be treated in society. Everything is on the line in this moment. I don't think there's really much of a question about keeping Mary as a wife. There, there's just no, there's no good reason to do that at this point. And yet the, the angel says, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. 
What's in her is not what you think it is. This is from the Holy Spirit. Well, at this point in the relationship, this is when in the Christmas story we sigh this big, ah, she wasn't unfaithful, and Joseph knows it, and now they're all on the same page, and the angel showed up to him too, and now we don't have to worry about all the awkwardness and everything, you know, and it should be exciting now because it's the Messiah, and all of a sudden this turned from a tragedy into a great triumph, but I, I, I think we should hesitate before beginning to feel that kind of shift, because if you think about this from Joseph's perspective, I mean, it may be absolutely amazing that he gets to be the surrogate father of the Messiah. On the other hand, this angelic appearance, has it changed much about how his life is going to go moving forward? I mean, in some ways it really hasn't, has it? I mean, it's not like, okay, so now he's going to go out to his buddies and he's like, no, don't worry about it, man. I know it looks a little weird, but what actually happened, this angel showed up to me and the deal is, is that she wasn't unfaithful, you know, it was the Holy Spirit did that, you know, it wasn't another guy, and it's, it's all good, and, uh, you know, actually what's more is, is this, this child who we would think of as a bastard child or whatever, it's not like that, actually, we should worship him, he's the son of God, and uh, his buddies are going to be like, wow, you're really sick, like, something's wrong with you, and you need to, like, get over it, buddy, and move on, you know, th- it's not going to work, and so even if He is completely convinced at this moment society is not going to be convinced and his life is still going to be in shambles, isn't going to be what he thought it was going to be. And so it's important to recognize in this moment, I mean, he's been anticipating and looking, and it's not just what they think, it's his own life. I mean, he's been looking forward to this moment with his wife. Think about this. How cool is it that, that Joseph and Mary in that moment this was the norm, too, completely were pure and saving themselves entirely for one another as far as intimacy goes, you know? It's an awesome thing, wonderful thing. And so here, here you know, and think about a guy, a young guy who's been growing up, you know, and he's, he's known this is the woman I'm going to be with and all this. Like, yeah, there's, um, how do you say it uh, appropriately? Um, there's some repressed... Uh, emotions, okay, yeah, that are, that are within this man, and he's been looking forward to this moment for a long time, well, here now it is, it comes, and he finds out that his wedding night isn't going to be what he thought his wedding night was going to be, <clears throat> and that all that he had planned is, is going to be a little different, and, you know, women, let me give you, let me paint another picture for you to help you relate a little bit, you know, say, there's this, uh, there's this woman who's going to get married to a soldier, okay, this dashing young man. And he's, he's a spectacular guy, and she's known him since they were in middle school. They've been sweethearts for a long time. And uh, they are now finally tying the knot. And here it comes. There's, they've been engaged for about a year, but she hasn't been planning the wedding for a year. She's actually been planning the wedding for like the last 20 years, you know. But the, she's actually like, it's rolling out now over the last year. And it's finally the wedding day, and here it is. And there's about three hours until the ceremony is supposed to take place. And she's, you know where she is at this point? She's at the salon, right? And she, she's there with her girlfriends and they're getting their hair done. And half of her hair is like in curlers and doing this other thing. And over here, they got it all like blow dried out or something. I don't know. But it's like, it's like there's two different halves of her right now because they're working on the one half and already did the other half. And, um, and she's sitting there and Johnny is just kind of like waking up, you know? <laughs> And his, he and his buddies are starting to wake up, and they're like, 
yeah, it was fun last night and everything, and here's the big day, Johnny, you sure you want to do it, you know, and all of that. And it's all his, all his buddies from the military, it's going to be a full dress wedding, it's going to be a military wedding, it's, and all of a sudden his commanding officer comes and knocks on the door and says, Johnny, I, I don't know what to tell you, this is terrible news, but there's a huge crisis happening over in the Middle East. We got called up, we're shipping out, we got to ship out in the next couple of hours here. And... Uh, and I know, I know this is a huge day for you and for your wife, but everything's about to change, man. This is an international crisis. We have to get over there immediately, and we got our orders. We got to go. And he said, you got about an hour and a half, man. So if you want to try to pull off this wedding, obviously your guests aren't going to be able to get here. Um, and uh, I, if you want to pull it off, go ahead, you know, and we'll support you as best as we can. Um, and what's more is he's like, I saw that I know you guys had your first date at Subway, and so you guys got Subway to cater the, the, the meal afterward. I saw this, the 24-foot sandwiches rolling in, you know, and he's like, all the guys who are going to be here, they're all shipping out, and they haven't eaten, you know, and so is there any way that, like, you know, you're going to need to use the sandwiches for something. Can they get a meal before they take off? So here Johnny is with this news, and he goes over to where Susie is, and he says, he opens the door, you know, walks in, and here her hair is all over like this. It's like a canvas, you know, that has paint on it yet, but hasn't turned into an actual painting yet, you know. That's kind of what this is like. It's a work of art, but it isn't complete. And, and here it is, and he has to tell her what's happening. And the moment that she's been dreaming about her entire life, and the thing she spent the last year of her life planning for, all of a sudden is being completely co-opted for a higher purpose, you know. And she's got to like come to terms with this. And what am I going to do? Is this going to be okay? You know, and everything is what, what in the world? And, uh, and she's got to come to terms with it. And she's got to figure out what she wants to do. Is she going to marry this guy? I mean, she might never see him again. What's, what's, what's going to happen? And she's got to make a decision. And if you think about the emotion of that moment, you'll know a little bit probably of what this was like for Joseph. And how he had worked hard to establish this business to take care of his family. And how he had looked forward and, and, and taken very good care of keeping himself pure and of waiting in this moment for this woman. He's worked hard to, to pray for her and honor and, and be ready for this moment where they can start their life together and raise a family together. And all of a sudden, their life is interrupted when this woman who he thought he understood and knew is all of a sudden pregnant and then the Holy Spirit did this, the angel told me, and wow, I really thought that things were going to go a different direction than this, and I didn't see this coming. It's not just his wife. I mean, the whole thing with his son, it's not going to be his son. It's really the son of God and his firstborn son, and there's the whole heritage thing with trying to carry on the family line, and who knows what that's going to be like, and I didn't get the manual on how to raise the Messiah. You know, I like, it's bad enough when... When, you know, you're married and all of a sudden you have a kid and your, your marriage just changes, you know, the marriage changes drastically and all of a sudden all your decisions are informed by this little package here and it's the most amazing thing, it's awesome, it's difficult, but it's awesome, but it, you know, we earned this, it was our fault this happened, <laughs> you know, and we're, here we are and it's great and now we care for this one and we've processed it together instead of like all of a sudden this is just dumped on us and I, what didn't happen was that the angel didn't take Mary and Joseph aside one day with a consultation with them and say, hey, here's, what our, here's what we're thinking, guys. 
we're thinking about maybe, you know, having you be the surrogate parents for the Messiah, you know, and, uh, and you can um, take care of them. And after you do all that, hey, this is the plan. This is how it all worked out. You guys take a few months to think about it and pray about it and get back to me and see if it's okay. No, the angel shows up and says, Mary, you're going to be with child. Joseph, she's with child. It's already done. We already did it. Remember, Joseph, before she's your wife, she's my daughter. And you're going to have to come to terms with that. And here's the deal, buddy, is that he's not just asked whether it's okay. He's not just informed. He's commanded. It tells us at at the end of the chapter here in verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. You know, how many times do you like having your life radically altered and changed and you never had any say in it at all? Someone just told you this is what you have to do with your life and then you just got to follow orders. Like, it's a lot more difficult to swallow when you don't have a choice in the matter, isn't it? Like, we like to be in control of our lives. And Joseph, who thought he was the man of the home, who was providing for his family and taking care of things, all of a sudden... He's trying to keep up with God and his wife, and he has no idea what's going on, and he's spinning. And it seems like this should be an amazing moment for Joseph because the Messiah's coming, and he gets to be the dad. But on the other hand, when you think about what this guy's been thinking about for 20-some years or whatever of his life, and now all of a sudden, in a moment, everything's different? That's tough to come to terms with. I don't care how good the plan is that God has. It's tough to come to terms with God's plan, even when it's an amazing plan, because we have our own plans. And you see, what happens is is there's a massive collision waiting to happen. Joseph and the trajectory and the target he has for his life, and over here is God and the plan he has for his son. And it seems like they have nothing to do with each other until all of a sudden he realizes they have everything to do with each other, and they're completely and entirely incompatible. You ever heard the story of the, the, the captain of the ship who's out on the, on the open sea at night and he sees in the distance some dim lights and he gets his signal man and he says, hey, send the uh, message out. Alter your course 10 degrees south. And they send out the message. Right away a message comes back that says, alter your course 10 degrees north. Captain's like, who's this? Right back again, alter your course 10 degrees south. This is the captain. Message comes back, alter your course 10 degrees north. This is uh, Seaman, third class Jones. Okay, captain's indignant at this point, actually pretty angry at this point. He says, all right, send the message right now. Alter your course 10 degrees south, knowing he would strike fear into the heart. I am a battleship. Message comes back, alter your course, 10 degrees north, I am a lighthouse. When two courses are, are going to collide, one's going to win, you know? Does God have the ability to win when it comes to a collision course with us? Of course he does. In this situation with Joseph, is he going to win? I Don't be too quick to answer because this is what happens, you see, God can win any fight that he wants to, but he doesn't always choose to win. I mean, look at this thing up here. Is that a symbol of winning? It is now, but it didn't used to be. That's a symbol of losing. 
Sometimes God chooses to lose. Sometimes because it's the ultimate victory. But sometimes because he needs to let us make decisions in our lives. And even though he can win every time, sometimes we don't. And Jesus is the stone that makes men stumble and the rock that makes them fall. And when we are defiant and insubmissive, the best possible thing that can happen to our lives is when we run across the rock of Jesus and it puts our life in shambles. And at least at that point, we're broken enough to begin to rebuild. The worst is when we're insubmissive and he lets us go and he lets us do what it is that we want to do. That's the tragedy. That's the moment that's horrible. So in this moment, is God going to win? Did he win? It's awesome. He doesn't even have to win. Joseph, he like gets off his boat and jumps on God's. Like he doesn't even, like his journey's over. It completely flips. See, this is the thing. Joseph, he doesn't even just submit and turn his boat another way. He, he just realizes like I'm on the wrong ship here. I got to get on board with God. And listen how we know it. It says in, in, in verse 25, after, well, verse 24 says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. That's called submission. Now, this is a whole other level in verse 25. But he had no union with her until he, she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Where in the scripture prior to this does God says, say that he shouldn't consummate this marriage with his wife? Does it say, I don't remember reading that anywhere in there, right? And here this guy is who's held out for a long time for this woman, right? And now he's going to get married. And there's nowhere where it says that he, he shouldn't engage in this level of the relationship. And yet it, we're told that he withdraws from the relationship in this, in this fashion and he does not engage in any intimate relationship with her. You know what that is? That's not just submission by like begrudgingly dotting the I and crossing the T, I'll do whatever you say, God. It is getting his heart on board with what God is doing, wrapping his mind around what it is that God's trying to accomplish and using his life as a vessel of service in order to try to help God's plan move forward in whatever way he can. And he doesn't see his life as his own anymore. He sees it as a piece of God's life. And so what he says is, absolutely, God, this is before she is my bride, She's your daughter. So this moment, do what you've got to do. And I will support and, and, and do everything I can. But she's not my wife yet. She's your daughter. And this son, I'm going to raise him as if he was my own and all of that, but I understand this is your son. And I need to treat him as such. And this life of mine that I had a target for, it's, it's yours now. And do with it as you will. It's an amazing moment to watch Joseph go the extra mile and really give his life over to Christ in this way. And we've had a few moments, Jen and I, in our life, in our life like this. I mean, I, I remember one time when uh, we, were, we were here at Parker Ford and then we went out to, to a church in Lebanon. You remember a couple of weeks ago we had people come and show us the painting from Joseph that they had made for us. They were from uh, Cornerstone. That's the church that we were a part of that time. And when we were done the internship out there, when I was done the internship, they, uh, the elder team and the senior pastor, the senior pastor was leaving to go to Africa and he asked me to stay on as the senior pastor at that church. And I loved that church. It was, it was an awesome church. I mean, it, it was great. There was so much fun. It was like a free church. It was just great. And it was down in the, it was a small city, but I really liked kind of urban context. And it was everything that I like. And so when he asked, I was like, yeah, I'll do, well, you know what, 
uh, I just remembered that I had told God two nights ago in my journal that if ever a decision came up that seemed like a life-altering decision, here's my commitment. I won't say yes or no until I've prayed and asked you about it. So I, I, here's the caveat. Yes on every level, but let me just run it by God real quick and my wife and make sure that everyone's okay with it, you know? And so I go back and I talk to Jen, and Jen, like, wasn't feeling it as much as I was. And I'm like, really? You know, and like, then I talked to God and I didn't even have all that much peace about it. I I called my family. I called my parents. I talked to them. They weren't really feeling it. I called Josh out in Michigan and talked to him. And he wasn't like really like being a huge cheerleader about it either. And I was like, come on, like I'm a young guy. This is a great spot for us. You know, I'm going to be a senior pastor. That'll be cool. You know, and all this stuff. And it wasn't God's plan. And eventually, I had to yield, but I got to tell you, I didn't yield as well as, as Joseph did. You know, he, he got his heart and his mind all into it. I kind of was like, I was, I was, you know, standing up or sitting down, submitting to God on the outside, but I was standing up on the inside. You know what I mean? That's, it was one of those moments. Um, and God had this amazing plan. You know, where he took us to Ephraim Church of the Brethren, where we had a phenomenal experience there and learned so much that was really important for this. And my buddy Jay, who's one of my closest friends in the world, ended up taking the pastorate up there in Lebanon. He moved up from St. Louis, and now we get to do ministry side by side. And it's just like God had this other plan. And I'm not saying that when we submit to God, life is roses. Sometimes it means that we're martyrs, you know? Sometimes it means that it's just absolutely brutal. But what I will say is when we give our lives to God, we give him space to do his best work. If we want to take our lives and do whatever we want with them, God usually gives us the basic freedom to do that. But if we will yield our lives to his plan, he has the ability to do some spectacular things in our lives. In 1867, there was this young man from America who took a trip to Bristol, England, and he was over there and... uh, he was in this Bible study. And uh, in the Bible study, uh, he heard the, the pastor was communicating all sorts of things, but there was one phrase that stood out in his mind. The pastor said, the world has yet to see what God can do through one man who is fully committed to him. The world's yet to see what God can do through one man whose life is just fully committed to him. And it, it got stuck in his brain and he couldn't get it out. And he just kept thinking about it and thinking about it until finally he said, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to give my life to God, and my life is not going to be my own. I'm going to completely yield my life to Christ and see what he can do. And that young man was Dwight Lyman Moody, who was the 19th century version of Billy Graham. And thousands and thousands of people came to know Jesus through his ministry because in a moment he began to realize that his life was not his own, that he needed to yield his life to Christ. He needed to submit to Jesus. Sometimes submission to Jesus becomes obvious. Every now and then, an angel will show up and tell someone what they should do with their life. Okay, well, it becomes real obvious what the choice is in this moment. Other times, a little piece of whatever falls from the ceiling and hits us on the head. But there's a whole other level of submission, a way God informs us about his plan. First of all, he gives us this and tells us how we should live our lives. And this comes in direct conflict with most of my nature. (laughs) My life wants to go one way and his word wants me to go another way. And he puts people in my life 
in my life who I have to submit to, who frankly are not God and are not angels and don't feel like things that I should really submit to, and yet his word tells me that I should. He shows me how to submit to him and he directs my life, not just through angelic appearances and through things falling from the roof, but he puts authority in my life who I have to submit to. And he puts people around me whose desires are more important than my own. And I have to learn how to submit to those things. First Peter speaks very clearly to the Christians of that day about how they're to submit to the authority, the governmental authorities who rule over them. You know who the governmental authorities are who were ruling over those people and who got the letter from First Peter? That's like Nero. You know, he, he doesn't think kindly of Christians. He, he, he lights them up as torches in his palace. That's what he does with Christians. And Peter's telling them to submit. You kidding me? How could that possibly be what it is that God wants them to do? When we are willing to submit to God, we show that we trust his plan more than ours, that we believe he's good. When we're willing to submit to the authorities that he puts in our lives, we're willing to show God that we trust in his sovereignty so much that this bozo over top of me who doesn't know what I should be doing with my life, it doesn't matter. I can trust and submit and serve them well and do everything I can to help them and make their business thrive, to make that ministry work, to make this family function and do everything I can to help them out. It doesn't mean that I think it'll come back around and that they'll help me out. It means that I think God's in control. And when I trust God and do what he asks me to do, then I believe that his best interest for my life and for this world will be fulfilled when I submit the way he tells me to submit to him directly, to those authorities placed in my life, and even the people who are right next to me. So submit to one another in brotherly love. Submit to one another in brotherly love. Have you ever um, been to one of those bridges that's a one-lane bridge, and it has a yield sign on both sides? And like, I, I, you know, um, there's one of these over on Harmonyville Road, and if you turn on Harmonyville Road... I don't even want to tell you about If you don't know about Harmonyville Road, I don't want to tell you because it's one of the best kept secrets out there. Some of you drive Harmonyville Road all the time, and uh, it's a beautiful road. And instead of taking 23 to the turnpike, you could take that. But I don't want to tell you that because I want to keep it nice and quiet for me. I don't want to yield and submit. Anyway, there's uh, one way on the, at the beginning of Harmonyville Road, and as you go onto it, it's, it's, it always cracks me up because I'm like, how do you know who's supposed to submit to who? They, they both, you know, say yield. And what usually ends up happening on Harmonyville Road is I, I find that if I'm coming down and there's another car in the distance, someone's going to gun it, you know? <laughs> like, you're going to submit to me. When I'm the first one here, you're going to yield to me. And then it's like a game of chicken, you know? And um, it's funny, there's this other bridge that uh, was in effort of right where Jen and I used to live. And there's this, this uh, road called Moeller Church Road. And when you come down around the bend, it's a real tight little bridge. And... It's the same thing, yield on both sides. And it, it was so different than Harmonyville Road. It used to crack me up. I used to laugh out loud, like, every time this would happen. But I'd come down to this bridge, and there would be a line of traffic on one side and a line of traffic on the other, and they're taking turns, letting the next person go from the other side. And I'm like, this is the most inefficient thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, I wanted to get out of the, get out of the car, stop in direct traffic, and say, all of you come through, you know, come through. Then all of you come through. Because what would happen is obviously you have to wait until the other person's all the way through before the next person can go. And it just takes forever, you know. But the funny thing was, is it was like they weren't, they were just in a submissive posture. I mean, really, that's what was going on. It was a submissive posture. It was like, 
I, sure, I got stuff I need to be doing, and life, you know, I, the time's ticking and all of that, but it's more important for me to show respect. Everyone else also has stuff going on in their life, and so I'm going to submit and let them go first, and even if it ends up wasting time being so submissive, it was still this posture of like, no, you go. No, you go. All right, now you go. Okay, now you go. As opposed to like, let's play chicken because, you know, my life is way more important than yours, buddy. What? You know, and that's the, that's the difference between those two roads and between a whole lot of other things. <laughs> but it's also the difference between whether or not a church looks like it's a place where Jesus Christ is born. And it's the difference between the type of person who God wants to have surrogate parents of his child when he brings them to earth. He wants someone who knows how to yield. And Joseph, he knew how to yield. He knew how to yield not just on the outside, but he knew how to yield on the inside. And there are days in my life when I've known what I'm supposed to be doing, but, but this authority figure in my life isn't really, doesn't get it and isn't helping me out. And I've got to choose whether I trust God and submit and let them be responsible for what they've got to do. There's been moments where there's been this person next to me who they have things they want to do in their life, but it conflicts with me. And, and I've got to decide, am I going to help facilitate what it is that they're doing or am I going to take control and make sure I get mine type of thing? And in those moments, we're not just determining whether or not we play nice with our neighbors. We're not just determining whether or not the, the structure of our, our, our family or our business works well. We're defining whether or not this collision course that's set up is going to be won by God or won by me. And I pray all the time that God will help me yield so that he can win the day. Because I have learned that I don't know what's best for my life. And when I think that I do, I'm deceived. And what I need more than anything is for God to continually disrupt my life and ask me to get on board. And if he does that through authority figures who it's difficult for me to submit to, if he does that through people in my life who seem to take and not give, if he does it through whatever, it's okay. He can do it through whatever he wants. And if I'm humble enough to receive it and get on board, then I will realize something that I didn't know before, that when God wants to take a little something and change the world with it, that he can actually do it through me if I'll submit to him. And Jesus submits to his Father by coming down and giving up his pleasures and his own will and his own life in heaven and making a way for us. We're told in this passage, this is the most beautiful thing, of course, in the passage, is in verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I mean, talk about a submission that's worthwhile. Jesus didn't need to come to earth. (laughs) Jesus didn't need anything, you know. We needed it. And he submits himself to us. He submits his life to us. And uh, he doesn't just save us from the consequences of our sin. He just doesn't just save us from our eternal destination. He saves us from the actual sin nature inside of me. Now, I don't know about you, but in general, submission is not the easiest thing in my life. You know? If it is, I don't think we'd call it submission. <laughs> you know? It's tough. It's tough. It's a real tough thing. And And my sin nature inside of me doesn't want to submit. And it's why I desperately need Jesus. Because he's got to change my heart so that I can submit. And so I need him all the time and I need him to submit to his father and submit to us 
and submit to the cross, submit to the Roman soldiers, submit to the Sanhedrin, submit to our sin and become sin and cleanse us so that we now can have the power to submit to him. And I hope and pray that for each of us this Christmas season, our prayers will be filled with all sorts of struggle, <laughs> like David in the Psalms when he's trying to submit to Saul. And he's just like, I don't get it. This guy just doesn't get it, God. He's not honoring you. He's not pleasing you. And you've put me in submission under him, and I don't understand how your plan for my life is working out. And he pours out in the pages of the Psalms all his frustration. And at the end of it, he always ends up saying, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I will be sustained by his everlasting love because God will provide. And so he doesn't trust or take control of his own life. Instead, he trusts his life into the hands of God. And I hope that our prayers will look like the Psalms. When we look at those places where we've got to give something up this, this, this season, where we want to submit to, to the person who doesn't seem like someone worth submitting to, you know? that the pages of our journals will be filled up like the Psalms. And our hearts will swell with the prayers that say, God, you've said to do this. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm going to do it because I believe that you are in control. And I want to get on board on your ship, not on my own. You know? And so that's what I hope our prayers look like uh, this Christmas. Join me in prayer now.